This past week, I received an email from a person who was, in the course of that email, comparing the moment when she came to understand the sovereign grace of God in salvation to a second conversion experience. She said that when that truth that God is sovereign even over salvation dawned on her, that it it deepened and enriched her worship of God in a way that she had never experienced before. And she is not alone in that sentiment. I know that for both Carol and I, it was as if the blinders had come off and the glory of God had been displayed before our eyes. And I will never ever forget the time and the place and the circumstances that surrounded that eventful day when the two of us came to understand, even in a limited way, how great and glorious our God is. It was a supposed to be a romantic getaway weekend. We had arranged for child care for the children and booked a bed and breakfast up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Just a beautiful place, gorgeous view of the White Mountains. So here we were. We were going to get away on this romantic weekend, and uh, we found that for the majority of the weekend, we didn't see anything but each other's faces and Bibles as we sat on the floor of this gorgeous bed and breakfast. Bibles open on our laps going back and forth about the issue of the sovereignty of God in the election of people unto salvation. And I will never forget Carol's words. They still ring in my ears even to this day. She said to me, but it's not fair. And I responded uh, somewhat less than tactfully. You show me in the Bible where God says he has to be fair. And back and forth we went. Well, the Spirit of God gave us both a great dose of humility and by the end of a weekend a wonderful unity around that amazing and sobering reality that both Carol and I had been chosen by God. Open your Bibles to um, the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, page 1133, if you're using a pew Bible. This is the second message with this title chosen by God. And this week and next, as we're looking at verses 14 through 23, we're not going to get all that way today for sure, but this week and next, as we're looking at verses 14 through 23, we're going to see two very serious accusations two very serious accusations that arise from Paul's doctrine of election so that we will understand why these accusations must be rejected. They must be rejected. You know, these accusations, and they're there in verses 14 and 19. You might just look quickly. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists 
his will. These are the two accusations. And, you know, these accusations would not arise against Paul's doctrine of election if it were true that Paul elected people based on foreseen faith. If it were true that God simply looked down the corridors of time and saw who it would be that would believe, and then on the basis of what he saw, he elected them unto salvation. If that were indeed Paul's teaching, then there would be no need to answer these accusations. They wouldn't even rise in the first place. Paul could simply say that the reason some Israelites believe and the rest do not is because God knew that some would believe and the rest would not, and He just elected unto salvation those that would believe. End of the discussion. And it wouldn't be necessary to write verses 14 through 23, which are some of the most serious and difficult verses perhaps in the entire Bible. But that's not what he has taught. Paul addresses these accusations precisely because he has just taught us that God has chosen some people for salvation and others not, and He has chosen it without regard to their heritage or their character, real or foreseen. Therefore, God is obviously unjust. That's how the logic goes. If that's really the way God works, if He just chooses some people and doesn't choose other people and it has nothing to do with them, then He is not fair. He's not just. To the people that the Apostle Paul is making this argument initially, they know that God is just. They know that God is just. They're not confused or concerned that somehow God is unjust. In fact, it's the opposite. They know God is just. And therefore, they are saying to the Apostle Paul that, Paul, your explanation for the unbelief of Israel doesn't make any sense. Because what you are presenting creates the caricature of an unjust God, and we know God is just. And therefore, Paul, your gospel is not true. Justification by faith alone, that which you have hung your hat on, that which you have said in verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8, that you're convinced that nothing will separate you from the love of, Christ, or love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, doesn't hold together, Paul. There's no security in salvation. So Paul needs to address this issue. He needs to address this. And he's going to do it for us. Beginning in verse 14. There are two accusations in this text. I told you verse 14, verse 19. This morning... Let's look at the first one together in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. 
may it never be. Now, several times in this letter, the progress of this letter, the Apostle Paul has paused to sort of summarize his teaching to that point and to answer an objection that has been brought against that which he has taught. Paul knows what the standard objections are. I mean, this is the this is the same gospel he has been preaching week in and week out, month after month, year after year, as he has been planting churches all over the known world. So this is not some new objection. This is a this is a standard objection that would have been brought to again to bear against his gospel at this point in time. He knows what the objection is. He knows what this objection is, and he knows what others are along the way that that come. And so periodically he pauses and he summarizes and he raises the objection that's on the minds of his opponents, and then he answers it for them. Sometimes the objection comes because people, people genuinely misunderstand what he's taught, but other times the objection comes because... His opponents twist his teaching and what he is saying and try to box him into a corner. That, by the way, I believe is what's going on here in chapter 9. But we'll deal with that in a minute. So let me just show you this so you understand here. Chapter 6, verse 1. We see the same expression used again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Verse 2, Paul's response, may it never be. See, Paul has just finished teaching that where transgression, where sin increased, grace increases all the more in order to overwhelm it. And so his opponents would twist that teaching and they would say, well, then, Paul, it's obvious that the more we sin, the more God pours out his grace and the more he pours out his grace, the more glory he gets. So let's just sit up a storm and get let God have all the glory he wants. Paul says, what are you, crazy? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. No way. No, 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 no. Chapter 7. And verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Paul has just been teaching that it is the law that arouses sin in our flesh. And so as that truth bores in on people, the, the, the conclusion that some were drawing either by misunderstanding or by twisting Paul's word is the idea that Paul is saying that the law itself is sinful. And Paul says, what, are you crazy? May it never be. Now we arrive in chapter 9, verse 14. And the Apostle Paul has just taught up in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter that there were twins. Twins born of one father, the father of promise. And it says, although they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
So what's going on? Paul, are you really saying that God chose the younger to serve or the the older to serve the younger that he actually loves Jacob and hates Esau and he does it because of nothing within them at all? I mean, if God really decides who he will choose and whom he will reject apart from anything, either actual or foreseen within that individual, then how can he still be righteous? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Paul says, may it Never be. May it never be. This question actually here is more the form of an accusation. His opponents are not requesting any clarification. They are accusing him. You notice in verse 14, it says, There is no injustice with God. It's a statement, not a question. They're saying to him, Paul, there is no injustice with God. Therefore, you're teaching that God chooses without any reference to anything within the person he chooses makes him unjust. And since there is no injustice with God, then Paul, what you're teaching is wrong. Paul says, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. The reason, the reason that Israel has rejected her Messiah, the reason the majority of Israel has not believed the Gospel is because they were not chosen by God. They were not chosen by God. How in the world is he going to answer this this, uh, accusation? How will he formulate his reasons for rejecting the bind that they're trying to put him in? Will he resort to philosophical arguments? No. Paul answers the accusation here about the justice of God by simply citing the Old Testament. It's as simple as that. Paul takes them back to the Old Testament Scriptures. To two verses drawn from the book of Exodus. And then based on those two verses, he draws out the general underlying principle that that is there within those verses. And that is his answer to those who would say that God is unjust or that the Gospel is wrong Because it teaches sovereign election. Now it's important here as we begin to look at his answers both this week and next to understand something about how he forms this argument. Paul does not seek to meet a level of proof established by human standards. Paul doesn't feel compelled 
to meet the standards of logic of the guy in the street. He doesn't feel compelled to answer their assumptions about the fairness of God. Paul is satisfied with his defense and with his refutation of these two accusations with regard to God's justice if he can show that God is acting consistent with his nature. That's how he answers. Paul here in 14 through 18 and then again in 19 through 23, the, the force of his argument is to merely show that God is acting consistent with who he really is. That's his answer. And if he can show you from the scripture that God is acting in accordance with the true character of who he is as revealed in scripture, then as far as Paul's concerned, the question has been answered. The fact that it may not satisfy all of the human questions, that it may not meet the test of human logic is irrelevant to him. He merely wants to show them and us that when God acts in sovereign election, He is acting consistent with His character and His glory. And folks, I suspect that that's actually the only answer that we could understand. If God were to even choose to seek to explain it to its final detail, I believe it would be so far over us we would never understand it to begin with. So it doesn't try. So as we go through this morning, next week, continue on here, you're going to have questions. There's going to be things that come to your mind. Yeah, but what about? In some cases, you're just going to have to say, I don't know. I don't know. Paul builds his argument here, verses 15 through 18, upon the revelation of God in his own Scripture. I told you, two Scripture citations. His answer to the second accusation, verses 19 through 23, is built upon his character as creator. Paul says the only valid standard by which a human can judge God is Nothing more, nothing less than God Himself. Does He act consistent with who He has revealed Himself to be? If He does, He is justified. He is acquitted. So let's see if Paul can meet the burden of test, the burden of proof. Look at verses 15 and following. What shall we verse 14? What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. First reason. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You notice verse 15 begins with, with four. You see it? Just a little word for it indicates to us that he is. He's going to answer. He's going to begin to answer here. For this is my answer. He's going to demonstrate that why God is not unjust in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. Two sons born of the same father of promise 
twins. The choice made before they were born and before they had done anything good or bad. And Paul bases it here on Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. That's what he quotes. Exodus 33, 19. Paul reaches back into the Old Testament and he pulls forward this verse. And from this verse, he is going to show that God is acting consistent with his character, who he really is. That God is sovereignly free to choose the younger twin over the older brother Because Paul says this is not an isolated case. This is actually a reflection of the very name of God. That's going to be his argument. That when God chose Jacob over Esau, that wasn't some one-time event. That it was actually the pattern being played out of who God really is. Absolutely free in how He dispenses mercy. So let's think about the context. Exodus 33. The nation of Israel in this context here, the citation of Exodus 33, has just been severely judged by God because of their participation in the calf worship. Remember this. They had just participated in calf worship while Moses was away up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. As a result of their sin, God executed 3,000 people. 3,000. Following the display of God's wrath, God says to Moses, You have received favor in my sight, Moses. And Moses says to God, Well, prove it to me, God, by showing me your glory. Is this familiar with you? You know the story. Exodus 33:18 actually Moses says show it to me prove it to me show me your glory God says to Moses and that nobody can see my faith a face and live but I'll tell you what Moses I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock and I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you And then Exodus 33 verse 19 The one Paul quotes here. It's at that point that God says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. What's the point? The point of it all is that according to God's words to Moses, and in which Paul quotes here, we find a revelation of the very character and name of God. That's the point. One of God's most basic and essential characteristics is His freedom to bestow mercy on whomever He chooses, and He does it for His glory. Moses, you want to see my glory? My glory is that I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I show compassion on whom I have compassion. That is my glory, Moses. And so Paul lifts this verse and brings it forward. By the way, it's interesting to just 
Note as well that God's making this statement to Moses, mediator of the covenant. To the great mediator of the covenant itself, God says, Moses, I have unrestricted freedom in who I will be merciful to. My hands are not bound by any human activity or endeavor. Paul picks that point up and it's the basis of his earlier statements. Verses 11 and 12, 13. God's choice is not based on heredity. It's not based upon activity. It is based upon the character of God. His desire to show mercy to some. Whoever He chooses. Therefore, there is no injustice with God. When He shows mercy to some people, He chooses to have mercy on one person over against another person. God is acting in exact accordance with who He is. He's he's acting out His glory. In fact, to, to put forward the notion that God is obligated to show mercy based on some sort of outside influence would be to require God to act contrary to his, to his nature. And He can't and He won't. The sovereign freedom of God in choosing who He will be merciful to is the essence of His godness. Verse 16, so Paul principalizes this. So then, do you see it? Verse 16. So then, he's going to turn this into a principle. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The it, by the way, just refers back to the compassion and mercy of verse 15. Paul's saying the general principle here is that since God has declared that it is His nature to have mercy on whomsoever He wills, therefore any human effort cannot and does not incline God to extend mercy. Mercy is only extended by sovereign choice. Only. By the way, if we would stop and just think about the word mercy for a moment, that shouldn't really surprise us. It shouldn't really surprise us. It's, this concept is actually inherent in the term mercy itself. Mercy is the opposite of justice. Mercy is the opposite of justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting something you do not deserve. In fact, the dictionary definition of mercy is, quote, kind and compassionate treatment of an offender, enemy, prisoner, or other person under one's power. That's what mercy is. Think with me. When you pray and beseech God for mercy, do you parade before Him all of your accomplishments and reasons why He should grant your request? 
Is that what your prayers are like? God, be merciful to such and such a person because they're really a good person at heart and they've done all these good things and this and that and the other thing and then you parade all the accomplishments. Is that how we pray? No. If we prayed like that, we'd be asking God for justice. We'd be saying, God, treat this person right because they deserve to be treated right. But that's not how we pray. That's not how we pray for ourselves. That's not how we pray for other people. We don't say, God, save this person because they deserve to be saved. We say, God, be merciful to this sinner who does not deserve it. When you pray for mercy, you're not making a bargain with God. You're pleading with Him. But here's the problem. The problem is deep, deep, deep down inside. Most of us think we do deserve better than we get. When we're really, really honest, most of us think we do deserve it. We voice mercy, but in our hearts we're thinking justice. Foolish. Foolish people that we are. Notice again, verse 16, this general principle. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Willing speaks of an inner desire, a purpose, a readiness. Running talks about the exertion of effort. When Paul says here, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, he's, he's speaking about human attainment, human achievement, all pulled together. It kind of ties into verse 11 where up above Paul says, not because of works. By the way, if you look over to chapter 11, or excuse me, verse 31 of chapter 9. You get an idea of this willing and running. He talks about Israel there. He says, Israel pursued a law of righteousness. It's that idea of willing and running. They were pursuing after it. Paul says they don't arrive at that law. It has nothing to do with your pursuits, it has nothing to do with your virtue has nothing to do with anything. Including this idea about foreseeing faith somewhere in the future. Really, verses 15 and 16, by the way, are just a reiteration and an expansion on the positive statement about sovereign election that Paul's already just presented in verses 10 through 13. I mean, this is one context. Paul says, verse 13, Jacob I loved. That's the same as I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's the same idea, same basic concept. Now Paul's going to turn to the other side of the argument. 
second part of his twofold reason here why this accusation of God being unjust is totally bogus. Second reason is that God's choosing some, having no basis in anything with regard to them, is consistent with his purpose. First, it reflects his nature. That's the point of verse 15, Exodus 33, 19. Now Paul's going to reach back into the Old Testament again, back into the book of Exodus. He's going to give us the flip side of it. He's going to give us the negative side. He's actually going to address the issue at the end of verse 13. But Esau, I hated. He's going to do it with the same structured argument. Verse 17, for the Scripture says, you see it? Same thing, Scripture quote. Verse 18, so then, general principle drawn from Scripture quote. It's the exact same form of the argument. Quote the Scripture. Draw out of it the general principle that underlies that one text. And then apply it. So verse 17. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul selects this Scripture quote from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. In its original context, it's God's words to Moses about what Moses is to say to Pharaoh on the occasion of the sixth plague. Moses and Aaron are to go before Pharaoh and they demand the release of the people of Israel. Notice it says, verse 17 here, for this very purpose I raised you up. Raised you up. Has the idea of bringing you up or or, or Pushing you to prominence. Putting you out in front. God providentially raised this particular Pharaoh to the throne of Egypt at the time He did in order that through this man there might be the outworking of salvation history. This is the man whose role was to be ruler of Egypt and through whom God would demonstrate His power and proclaim His name through the whole earth. You see it? Verse 17. That was this man's purpose. Pharaoh's unbending opposition to God's demand for the release of his people, even in the face of ten plagues and the eventual destruction of his armies, all became the occasion for God's declaration of His glory to the whole world. That was its purpose and that was its result. Forty years after the destruction of Egypt, Joshua chapter 2 tells us when the spies went into the land and they spoke to Rahab, they were still talking about what God had done to Egypt and how He had destroyed them. Beyond that, God's glory 
displayed through the destruction of Pharaoh is rehearsed annually every single year right to this day when people partake of the Passover celebration. Every time the Passover is celebrated, the glory of God and the destruction of Egypt is put on display. God delivered His people and He did it by destroying a nation. So what does this verse have to do with Israel's rejection of Messiah? How does, how does Paul tie this together? Why is this a reason why Israel's rejection of Messiah, how does that explain it? And, and how does this help God get off the hook, so to speak, of being unjust? In verse 18, how does Paul draw out a general principle? He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. How does he draw it all out of this text? I'm glad you asked those questions. Because what that means is that we are going to, to have to take the time here to go back to the book of Exodus and review the context of what's going on. Because Paul's citation here in chapter 9, verse 16, is at the end of the line. There's a lot that's gone before, and it's a summary statement. And it requires us to be familiar with that which has gone on before. Now, everybody who knows anything about the Bible is familiar with the story of Pharaoh, and they know that the story is told, it's a, it's a negative story. This guy's heart was hard, right? Let my people go, and he says, no way. Well, what is the series of events that leads up to that? Because that's where the answer that Paul is, is deriving comes from. So go back with me to Exodus chapter 4. That's page 60 if you're using a pew Bible. By the way, it says back there in Romans 9.18, it says that he will harden whom he desires. That word hardened means insensible, it means unresponsive, it means deadened. God raised up Pharaoh to be unresponsive, to be insensible, to be deadened. So that he would manifest his adamant opposition, opposition to God's demand for the release of the people, which would then set up the confrontation of the ten plagues and the eventual destruction of the military might of Egypt. So there's no doubt that 9.16 is talking about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. The big question is, who did the hardening? Pharaoh or God? That's the big question. Who did the hardening? According to Exodus chapter 4 through 14, which is the, is the narrative that recounts this whole event, both God and Pharaoh are said to have hardened his heart. We find both statements in the narrative. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there are also a number of statements that say Pharaoh's heart was hardened without any reference to who did the hardening. So some people postulate that 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then God, in response to Pharaoh's hardening, just further hardened it. But that doesn't hold up to the text. So let me just walk you through this real quick. Real quick. (laughs) Chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. This is the beginning of it all. Exodus 4, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. First statement of hardening is God's statement. I will harden his heart. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the fulfillment of God's prediction. Chapter 5, verse 1, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Jump down to verse 7. You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the quota of bricks which they are making previously shall still impose on them. You shall not reduce any of it, because they are lazy. And therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, that they may pay no attention to these false words. Moses goes and says to Pharaoh, let my people go. God predicted that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. When Moses comes to him, speaks to him, Pharaoh turns him down flat out and makes it worse on the people. Verse 22, chapter 5. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm on this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Look again at verse 22. Moses returns and he says, Lord, why have you brought harm on this people? Moses understands that Pharaoh's harsh reply to the statement of the deliverance is because God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Therefore, Moses holds God responsible. He says to God, why have you, God, brought harm on the people? Chapter 7, after this initial rebuffing, God again commissions Moses to go back to Pharaoh and demand Israel's release. Chapter 6, verse 28 and following to the end of the chapter. And God again predicts that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not listen and he will do so in order that his glory may be displayed by the judging of the Egyptians. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, and he that he let all the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Verse 13. 
Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. By who? Well, in the context here, there's no way to understand it by anyone other than God, the one who said just ten verses earlier that he was going to do it. It is the fulfillment of what God said he was going to do, the beginning part of the chapter. Turn over to verse 22. We've had two introductory exchanges now between Moses and Pharaoh. We've had a double prediction and a double fulfillment that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. And now we have the beginning of the plagues. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but again, it's hardened as the Lord had said. Twice it has been predicted that God will do it. Twice it's been fulfilled. We're to understand as we move into the plagues here that this is still the outworking of God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9. Verse 12. We're at the sixth plague by now. Chapter 9, verse 12, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the, this is the fulfillment of the predictions of 421 in chapter 7, verse 2, I believe it is. 3, 7-3. Now, Paul lifts out his quote, chapter 9, verse 16. For this cause I have allowed you to remain, Pharaoh, in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So when Paul lifts out this quote now from Exodus, he's lifting out with it all of the context that has led up to it. Where it is clearly been established that it is God who is the originator of the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. Now back to Romans 9 and verse 18. So then, principle, conclusion, drawn from what's gone before, is that He has mercy on whom He desires. He hardens whom He desires. When Paul lifts this quote out here in verse 17, he's, he's bringing with it the whole context. And the context is exceedingly clear. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, did Pharaoh play a part in it? Yes. I didn't read you all the citations from 4 to 14, and there are some in there where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Did Pharaoh play a part? Yes, Pharaoh played a part. But the origin, the beginning of it all lay in the sovereign purposes of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened because God had ordained it to be hardened. That's why. Verse 18, general principle. The God who freely bestows mercy on whomever He wishes is the same God who freely hardens 
whomever He wishes. He freely bestows mercy. He freely hardens. And it is all within His sovereign will. We have the correspondence here between mercy and hardening in verse 18 and love and hate in verse 13. You see it? I mean, this text is all tied together here. Paul does not intend us to view hardening as a divine reaction to sin. Because the the hating of Esau occurred before he was born. That's the point. This all happened before Esau was born, before the twin had done anything good or bad. The hardening occurs before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. The mercy occurs before they're born, before they've done anything good or bad. It lies in the eternal counsel of God. Beloved, when Paul's talking about hardening here, he is talking about unbelief. Go over to chapter 11. Verses 7 and 8. The hardening is to render unresponsive, dull, insensitive to spiritual truth. Verse 7, what then? That, what, uh, that which Israel is seeking for it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were what? Hardened, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. We're talking about unbelief. That's the big context. Remember, I spent so long setting that up in the early part of chapter 9. This is about the unbelief of Israel. Why does Israel not believe? Paul's answer here is because God has hardened them. And He has demonstrated mercy to a few. It is the action of God that leaves a person insensitive and dull when it comes to spiritual things. By quoting these two Old Testament texts, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. For this very purpose I have raised you up to demonstrate My power in you that My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Through these two texts, we are brought face to face with the glory of God. You know what? It's frightening. It is absolutely frightening. We have so tamed God in our day. We live under the illusion that He's like us. Just a man blown big. That when we encounter Him in all of His majestic glory, all of His sovereign freedom, it's scary. It's sobering. you have experienced the grace of God in your life, 
You have experienced it because He has sovereignly chosen to have mercy on you. The only response, the only response is to fall on your knees and worship. And if God has not saved you, if you are here this morning and God has not saved you, then with all my heart, I urge you to fall on your knees and beg Him for mercy. Because that's all you can do. That is all you can do. Salvation is not like selling used cars. All I got to do is go in and pay the asking price and I drive it off the lot, right? There is no formula here, folks. Say these words, pray this prayer, God is obligated to save you. No. No. Plead with Him. Plead with Him to save you. Flee to the cross of Jesus Christ and hold onto it with all that you have and beg Him to apply its benefits to your life. See Him for who He really is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're not going to end with a song this morning. Instead, what we're going to do, I'm going to pray here in a minute, and then I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and meditate just for a moment or two on what we've heard. This is way too heavy duty to walk out of here on a glib song. Think about what you've heard. Our Father, may You apply the truth of this deep into our hearts. Lord, we are, we are taken back by all of this. We are, we are sobered by this. We are frightened by this. We're shocked. Because You are so different than we are. Our Father, please... Please enable us to think seriously on these things. And please extend your mercy and grace to those who do not yet know it. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.